This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Get in, losers. This is the Lady Killers, a feminine rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy. I'm Rocco. And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female identifying killers in horror and more. Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines. We'll tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her? Join us on Thursdays as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen. No boys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Hey everyone, Randall here with Mike. Say hello, Mike. Hey. Good today, morning. <laughs> today we're here talking to Bev Vincent, author of the brand new Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, life, and influences. Uh, if you're a patron, you've probably heard Bev on the Losers Club before. He was a guest on our very first archives episode. Uh, and yeah, he is truly a King scholar, uh, the author of books like um, Stephen or uh, The Dark Tower Companion, the Stephen King Illustrated Companion, The Road to the Dark Tower, and uh, also, you know, a published author of his own stories. Um, thank you so much for, for coming back on the Losers Club, Bev. Thanks very much, guys. Happy to be here with the other losers. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more, just kind of about the origins of this book. Um, so, I mean, obviously, you know, you've been writing about King for a lot of your, uh, you know, your career. So it makes total sense that you'd write sort of a complete exploration kind of book. So, what was the impetus for this uh, particular tome, and how would you sort of characterize the writing process? So, in uh, I guess it was about two thousand and eight. 
I was approached by a publisher who had been commissioned by uh, Barnes and Noble to do uh, a reader's companion to Stephen King. And that's where the Stephen King illustrated companion came from. And for that one, it was meant to be a shorter uh, volume. So I didn't have the room to be as expansive as I wanted to be. So I only could cover you know, eight or 10 books in that one. And over the years, I kept going back to them saying, you know, should, should we update it? And we did an update once where we added a new chapter at the end. And then last year, I, I went back to them and uh, found out that the publisher had been acquired by the Quarto Group. So they were now part of a much larger enterprise. Mm. So when I pitched this, uh, an updated version, they said, well, rather than doing an update, let's uh, make a completely new volume. Yeah. And so that gave me the opportunity to cover everything to go right back to the, the beginning and touch, at least touch on, but uh, explore, uh, you know, in some depth, every book that he's published over his career. And the sort of the internal motivator in the publisher, because they always have to have a reason, you know, why do we want to you know, do this book is because next week is King's 75th birthday. Yeah. And that made just sort of the perfect reason for this book to happen. And so, uh, some of the content is what was in the Stephen King Illustrated Companion, but I've gone back and I've looked at everything. I mean, there were books from the 90s that I never even mentioned in that previous book, and now yeah. I have an opportunity to dive into them. Plus, with given the uh, increased width, I was able to do things like sidebars on Castle Rock and Derry and, uh, you know, explore some of those things that, uh, as deep as I could get into them. And so, it's a... Um, the the title is you know the the work life and influences of king um and so i've never been particularly interested in straight biography yeah where i'm interested in biography is where it intersects with what he's writing yeah. how does his life influence a particular book that he was working on or even a story from the past that you know sort of props up into something that he writes subsequently and so a lot of what i've done in this book is to go back to the horse's mouth so to speak and to find interviews that were given around the time books were being written or being published and, you know, by, by King, you know, those interviews and to pull quotes that show where his head was at. Well, what was he thinking? Why did he write these books? All the way up to, I was uh, fortunate to be able to uh, put in at the end, uh, an interview he gave about fairy tale when it was first announced so that I can could have the fairy tale, you know, it's complete up through fairy tale uh, with, some of his thoughts on where that story came from yeah. yeah yeah i mean that's that's certainly an insight that we like to try to you know target when we're doing the arc you know our chronological reread on the podcast and going into the book episodes just kind of seeing like yeah like where his head is at at the time of writing and and so much of that how that speaks to the story you know having gone through his work so many times throughout your own career while studying him, what were the biggest revelations you would say coming out of this book in that capacity of just, you know, <laughs> life imitating art or art, art imitating life, I would say. But the funniest revelation I had was when I wrote the sidebar about Castle Rock. And I had it in the back of my mind that I was going to go through all the books and find all the places where details about the geography of Castle Rock were mentioned. And I was going to create a map of Castle Rock <laughs> that was going to be my pride and joy. Here's a map of Castle Rock, <laughs> only to find out it is not possible. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many contradictions over the years. You know, the, the roads that lead into and out of uh, Castle Rock change. The relative geography of things change. 
Um, in more recent stories, uh, you know, there's a lot more detail that seems a little bit contradictory. So no can do. Couldn't do that. So what I did instead was uh, Glenn Chadbourne had done a really nice uh, sort of an artistic artistic impression of what Castle Rock looks like for uh, Rich Chismar's Gwendy book. Yeah. And so we got the permission to do that. Now, on the other hand, Derry is much easier because Derry is actually based primarily on Bangor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the geography there is pretty well established. And, you know, if King goes back to Derry, he can just go back to in his mind, at least to Bangor and, you know, what street goes here and what goes there. And so that one's a lot more consistent. Yeah, you have a Castle Rock's a mess. (laughs) Yeah, you have a quote in there from King where he basically says, the map of Castle Rock is in my head. (laughs) I love that. Well, I think what's funny is you talk about, you know, having the space to insert all these sidebars and to go down all these sort of little rabbit holes. And I think that's sort of the fun of being a Stephen King fan. I mean, we're a podcast that is exhaustive and we're five years in and every now and then we stumble upon like, how did we miss this little rabbit trail? How did we find this little story that uh, we've somehow never heard of despite being so immersed in there? Were there any like moments where you're like, uh, like where you, I don't know, where you uh, stumbled upon something and you're just like, Jesus, this too. Like, and you have to sort of well, like, yeah. You know, I, I've been a great archivist over the years. I, every uh, review or every, basically every interview that I've ever found of him, I've saved. Yeah. And there were some early books um, that collected his earliest uh, interviews. And so I, I had to go back to those. And I've digitized almost all of that stuff so that I can do searches. Yeah. And, you know, when you're looking for something that mentions a particular book, then you say, hey, well, hey he was really talking about this back then. Yeah. Um, I mean, the stuff about 112263 in particular. Yeah. I mean, I know he had the idea for this back when he was, uh, you know, a teacher, essentially. I mean, they sat around, you know, when Kennedy was assassinated, they, they, they talked about, you know, what was going on then. And he had this idea. And it, it obviously meant a lot to him over the years because he ultimately wrote it. But here it pops up again in various different places. Um, one of the, I think it was probably the volume zero of the, the Dark Tower graphic novels. There's an interview in there. He talks about this idea. And, you know, in uh, Wolves of the Kala, yeah. he basically lays out the whole plot of 112263, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, a discussion with uh, Father Callahan. So, yeah, I mean, that sort of stuff to see how ideas persist. Yeah. And, you know, finally the time came when he felt like he was ready to sit down and write it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because we're actually about to Wolves of the Kala is our next book that we're talking about in October. And I've already noticed uh, probably three or four times over the last like couple of years in certain books, there will just be offhand mentions of like the Kennedy assassination and things of that nature. And it's really fun to sort of see like these ideas that persist and they met because that's the thing about I think like it's so smart to structure your book around how is King's life influencing his art and vice versa, because there is really a clear link there. This isn't somebody who like he wears a lot of his heart on his sleeve in his books and you see recurring ideas. You see, uh, you know, things that are clear. Like we have a a section on the pod that we do sometimes called King Sites. And it's like moments where we uh, kind of are like, this is King talking rather than the character in a certain moment, because so much of him is is woven into his books, I think. Um, which is, I don't know, so charming to me and something I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, here's a question. When you were writing this, were there any myths about King out there that you sought to clear up? Hmm. Interesting question. Probably. 
Now, nothing comes immediately to mind. Mm-hmm. But in, in my own life, I would say the, the biggest myth about King is that he's a creepy guy. <laughs> and a lot of people have this perception of him. And and he sort of cultivated that in the early years when he did things like the American Express commercial. Mm. And, you know, lots of his early appearances. And even to this day, you know, he always likes to throw in little things at the end of his public talks where he says, you know, when you're going to go get in your car and go home tonight, be sure to check in the back seat <laughs> he, he he has this persona which is beyond Stephen King it's like the public Stephen King and I you know having you know met him and talked with him and you know continuing to exchange he's just a regular guy he's very cool yeah and, and beyond that he's just immensely generous yeah um you know in my career but also you see and when he did his entertainment weekly columns and if you follow him on Twitter he does so much to help elevate mm-hmm. other people, um, which is, you know, one of the best uses of social media that you could possibly imagine. Absolutely. One of the one of the recurring elements and themes that I've seen in a lot of his works, and especially something that you mentioned while discussing the dead zone, and even when, you know, he had finished publishing Carrie, is that sort of paranoia creeping up that this could all be a dream? You know, he talks <laughs> a little bit about this in Hearts and Suspension as well. And I keep thinking of it almost like the, you know, the, well, I guess it became a Twilight Zone short, the occurrence of Owl Creek Bridge, where Mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, you live this whole thing and then all of a sudden the rug gets pulled up from under you. Why do you think this is like a consistent fear with him? You know, I mean, do you think it's like maybe his form of imposter syndrome? I mean, it it just seems like it's something that still creeps up like, you know, 30, 40 years later. Well, I think the, you know, currently I think he you know, he's talked about his biggest fear. You know, we did uh, flight or fright and it was this fear of flying, but yeah, um, nowadays, I, he talks about his biggest fear is about losing his mental faculties, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to remember things, not being able to recognize people, you know, the Alzheimer's, dementia sort of thing. And for somebody who is creative, that's got to be, you know, one of the, the worst things that could happen is that you no longer are in touch with the things that you've relied on. You know, he lives inside his head so much. I mean, these yeah. stories just come pouring out of him. And if that well were to dry up and go away i think it would be uh one of the the worst tragedies you can imagine yeah Yeah, and i could see that being some a sense of paranoia of just like i mean because if i'm him the way i've looked at it is like what if those ideas just stop you know and and i because i think so many of his the the seeds of his stories come from those moments that you know when we hear about him we're like jesus how the hell did he come up with that out of it you know i I always laugh about you know the shining and how you know a, a holiday visit with his family he you know he spends one more night walking the hallway and then coming back having a cigarette and he had the whole novel figured out in his head and we look at that and we're like jesus like how the hell is someone able to do that and i i think about that notion and i imagine that's maybe what he's getting at is this like the what if that stops you know and and i think he explores that have you guys read fairy tale yet we, I'm halfway through yeah halfway through for me yeah, yeah okay so a little bit about what fairy tale is about is how the the myths and legends and stories that we know in our world possibly originated in other worlds mm. a lot of what he the the main character encounters over there keeps reminding him of you know uh all of the uh grimm's fairy tales mm-hmm. and jack and the, uh, the, the wizard of oz and even like ray bradbury things yeah and i think one of the sort of postulates of this novel is that maybe there are other worlds and the things that go on there 
bleed through and creative people are particularly sensitive to them and they adopt those as the things that they write about. And so, you know, he's done a lot of work over the years of trying to explain where stories come from. Yeah. Yeah. And as somebody who's a, a creator of fiction myself, you sometimes marvel at the fact that you sit down at the keyboard one day and you've got a vague notion and you just start typing and the words just happen. And yeah. They flow through you and you get to the end of the session and you say, wow, yeah, I had no idea I was going to write that. Where on earth did that come from? The idea pool from Lisi's story. Yeah, the idea right? pool. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. That's so interesting. Um, and I guess when you talk about like this whole notion of of stories having been birthed in other worlds, I think I think an image I always come back to, and you mentioned this in your book, and you know, I think it's something that's been out there too, is just him finding this box of old paperbacks, you know, in his yeah. aunt's attic. And and that was an experience very similar to me when I was growing up, where I was in my grandma's basement and just I would just spend hours going through her bookshop. And that's how I found King was she had three King books there that I would kind of obsess over. And um, I don't know. So I think about these other worlds. I think it's like so much of his literary journey began reading these sci fi novels and these novels that took place in alternate histories and alternate realities. And a lot of King's early work, like The Long Walk and uh, and even The Aftermath, you know, his unpublished manuscript. Uh, they take place in these uh, these worlds that are so unlike our own. And I think that was something that when he was young, was he was he was kind of strung, I think, because then he would write something like Getting It On slash Rage, which is so firmly rooted in our world. But then he also has this mind that travels around the, um, I don't know, the the imaginary worlds and everything. And I think that's such a cool image to think of with King, because he's always been so great at at mirroring the grounded world with the more fantastical one. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about influences and things that you read early in your life, I started writing fiction seriously um, when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And that was that corresponded exactly with when I had first discovered King and I read the stories in Night Shift. Yeah. A lot of what I wrote in the early to mid 1980s were very much in the vein of the things that he did yeah. then. And, you know, if I hadn't read Night Shift, I'm not sure I would have been inspired to write at all. Mm. Yeah. But I was certainly inspired to write what I did back in those days by that book. It's yeah. such an eclectic collection. I mean, that that's our, I mean, I think we had a conversation a few years ago about Gateway King. And I think I've always just thrown that out there as like the best book to throw out for people that are coming into his world. Because you really do get to just see all faces of King in that in that collection for sure. I mean, even with just last rung on the ladder there, you get to see kind of where he's going to go with different seasons and, you know, even the green mile. Um, I, I want to talk about fairy tale just a little bit because there was a great piece in Esquire this week, um, maybe even dropped yesterday, but they talked, you know, at great lengths about how fantasy is, is a real, um, you know, sets King on fire in a way, you know, he kind of digs into some of the more personal meditations of his own life and his own writing. Do you think this is a genre that, that, that does light him up particularly? I mean, when you think about like the Dark Tower and even his work with Straub with the Talisman, um, or do you just think it's writing in general and it just happens to be that fantasy gives him a broader sandbox to work in? Well, you know, the the, the, um, the segment that I quote from his interview about where uh, the story came from, where fairy tale came from, you know, he was in, we were all in the midst of the COVID lockdown. Um, he wanted to write something happy, something uplifting. Yeah. And but oddly enough, the image that came to mind wasn't particularly uplifting. <laughs> it was about this kingdom where things are going to shit. Yeah, you know, everything's falling down. People are falling apart. 
but that was I mean, I, I think he's just so visually uh, driven that when these things come into his mind I don't know that he summons them or if he deliberately sets out to them I think they just appear um, you know you, you talk about some of the things like the green mile where that story came from something that he would tell himself every night when he went to bed you know every night he'd write the story in his head and he'd write a little bit further and he'd write a little bit further until it got to the point where he had to write the whole thing down yeah and where did that come from some image they almost all start from some image you know it came from walking over a bridge when he was going to pick up his broken down car from a garage and walking over this bridge and hearing his heels on this bridge and then thinking you know the three billy goats gruff and that image was the gem of the you know 1200 page novel <laughs> but that's where it came from if that if he hadn't gone for that walk that day uh, right something different might have inspired him to do it but it's hard to say yeah we always whenever we're you know doing our book episodes and digging deep we always love to find those interviews where he does discuss the single moment like with from a buick 8 uh which we just discussed we were talking about you know him going to this uh gas station and almost like slipping off you know a hill behind the gas station and like what if i just disappear yeah <laughs> could have been, that could have been the end the the, the, the amelia Earhart mystery yes yeah Carroll. exactly and then even like billy summers he said it just started from thinking of a man in a in a on you know ground floor apartment like looking up through the window at the feet walking by and it's like sometimes we laugh at how simplistic sort of the images are but i think that's like true for a lot of writers is it does mm -hmm. start in such a sim simple place um well Let's I want to talk a little bit about because last time we talk, uh, we spoke, we discussed like sort of gaps in his past that are, you know, fascinating to us. Uh, and looking at this companion, I we get the sense that you really wanted to like sort of explore his roots and his college years a bit more. Is this an area that you would say you like dwelled on in your research? Well, you know, the portrait of the artist as the young man. Yeah. How, how, how did he get his start? What fired him up to to write? Um, I mean, we're talking about Night Shift, you know, a lot of the stories that are in that collection, he wrote while he was a student. Mm -hmm. And you think about things like The Aftermath, which he wrote when he was 15 or 16. I mean, clearly always this burning desire to write. And in part, I think because he lived a fairly solitary childhood, and they moved around quite a bit. So and I grew up in not exactly similar context but i lived out in the country and I, there weren't many people around my age so i read a lot and i lived inside my head and i think those are things that drive creation if there's at all any talent there mm -hmm. you, you make up stories to entertain yourself you read other people's stories to entertain yourself but then you know you get to college and you have to write things um you know you go to class and they they demand that you write poems and but you know, I, I think he also saw that there was a, you know, when, when you're in college, you're discovering yourself, but you're also in a bigger world for the first time than you were in high school. And you want to make yourself known, I think. So, mm -hmm. you know, he did lots of things like he was in theatrical productions and, you know, protests and all that. But he also submitted a lot of things to the campus, uh, you know, literary journals and yeah. Then ultimately became a columnist for the the main campus. You know, all things that you know, you've got ideas you want to express, you want people to hear them, and all of a sudden you've got a channel where those things can happen. And yeah. those were all seminal 
uh, incidents that led to him becoming who he is these days, I believe. Yeah, we have an ongoing series in our archive section where we it's like we've we've have we done two mike of the garbage trucks yeah like we basically split up the garbage trucks into certain like you know chunks eras, and we've yeah. been kind of going through them as just a means of i don't know like understanding where his head was at and i think we've we've really tapped into this really fun discussion around and this kind of you know uh, started around the time we were talking about hearts in atlantis and then uh, hearts in suspension the accompanying book with that um you know great essay about his college years in it uh, i believe five to one and um and so we've spent a lot of time kind of i think pouring over his college narrative and his evolution from sort of goldwater republican to uh you know sort of paranoid hippie uh you know by the end of college and then um and then just exploring like these this that near death experience he had in a in a almost a car accident like when he was in college and Mike mentioned those what ifs uh you know and I think that there's a lot of those there as well and I think just trying to like understand who he was during that time is is really fun because I think that's where so much of his professional development happened so I guess I'm curious like Hearts in Atlantis do you think like there is something so deeply personal about it and it's really hard for us as readers to not see King as Pete, the main yeah. guy in that book. For you personally, like when you read that and having, you know, the relationship that you have to King, how much of King do you see in that story? Yeah, yeah quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and he lived in an era where if you didn't go to college, you went to Asia. Mm -hmm. And so this tightrope of, you know, I've got to keep up my academic level or else I'm going to get kicked out of university. And if I do that, I could die. Yeah. And, and you know, hearing you talk about near-death experiences is something that's sort of triggered in my mind. We, we should do a discussion sometimes of all the times in, in his life when he almost died. Yeah, and seriously. The other one that came to mind was the story he tells in the introduction to Flight or Fright about the time he was on the plane when he almost collided with a much larger aircraft. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, certainly. I mean, I there is a separation between King the person and the characters in his stories. I mean, Mike Noon in a Bag of Bones is not Stephen King, <laughs> yeah. but but yeah, we write from what we know and who we are and what we've experienced. So there's certainly got to be some level of King the person in there, um, and certainly Pete in uh, Hearts in Atlantis, and and you know the other part of that is uh, Low Men in Yellow Coats. That all took place in places where king lived as a kid yeah so bobby is also an avatar for king yeah growing up in the, those houses in that location and you know from my own writing you sometimes it's complete and utter fiction there's nothing to do with you but more often than not and I, and I find the more honest things that you write are things that are drawn from something that means a lot to you from some personal experience which you then can are free to just blow out of proportion, but there's a seed of truth there, which I think um, readers can identify. Yeah. Do you do you feel that there was maybe a Carol in a circle, uh, maybe in college and maybe growing up that? Uh... Uh, yeah, certainly he had girlfriends before uh, he he uh, met Tabitha. Um, some of them fairly long term. Yeah, uh, he hasn't talked about them in any significant detail, but he does mention some of them in the Hearts and Suspension. Yeah, uh, 
yeah so very possibly yeah yeah, yeah. It, that that era was just so much fun to go through because it really does feel like a, a rosetta stone and does so much of his own in and his you know his spirit there and how and just was, the political landscape of yeah. that time too yeah yeah, yeah. i mean one of hello bill band here from the all 80s movies podcast to tell you about factor meals eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. I mean, you mentioned King's Garbage Truck, but like, where do you feel that, you know, places him in his, in his development as a writer? Like, do you feel like he was really starting to develop his muscles there? Or do you think he already had them at that point? Definitely already, already had them when you hear about how he wrote those columns. Yeah. yeah. And he had, you know, 10 column inches or whatever they gave him. He showed up an hour before the deadline, sat down at the typewriter, just click, 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 click away, <laughs> build exactly the right amount of space told the story, whatever he was going to talk about from beginning to end. There's no question in my mind that he is a natural storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that there are many people who can just reel out the stories beginning to end in full, you know, three-act structure or whatever. He's There's just something almost genetic that he's got that allows him to do these things. He, he really- and when you hear about times when he struggles with stories then you sort of come up against say, well, it doesn't always work. Yeah, uh, We'll never see the plant uh, come to fruition, I believe, just because that story, although it excited him at some point, just ground to a halt and he couldn't chisel it out of the, the rock the way that it's, he normally can. It's a fascinating story to discuss. We have a whole upset about it. It's well, it's a riot. And, and that seems like such a rarity too, because I mean, one of the things we remarked while our last archives episode was all going through 1982 and, you know, a lot of uncollected uh, essays and interviews. But one of the things I gleaned in the interviews, and granted, you know, interviews are sometimes edited, you know, for clarity and, uh, you know, brevity on, on, on paper. But I have to imagine, and even watching like when he's on Dick Cavett, he, he, you're right. He is such a storyteller at heart and organically because he'll just pull things in metaphors and stories and to prove his point with such ease. Uh-huh. And with 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 uh, you know so much um, like th- there's so much grace to it where it has a beginning and a middle and ending and I can't t- I mean it's just in that capacity I'm so much jealous because it's so <laughs> nice to be able to it's like I- I'll start off with the metaphor sometimes and I'll just absolutely <laughs> catapult with it and I'm like where the fuck was I going with this and like but he just does it with ease and it's like and and they really kind of strengthen his point and I and I do wonder how much of it is thought ahead of time or if it's just in the moment with him you know where it's just a lot of it has to be in the moment because when you're in an interview situation you really never know what somebody's gonna throw at you 
the other thing that impresses me is his facility with poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not necessarily with writing it, but just to casually in the middle of a conversation, an interview, and in many of his books, just to pull out a snippet of poetry yeah. from some <laughs> random place that is so appropriate. Um, yeah. One poem I know that he talked about several times over his career in different interviews that's the reason why i suggested it for flight or fright was the uh, the falling that we have at the uh, james dickey poem but i mean i did an essay for the poetry foundation about king's poetry and i got back into the archives and i got copies of even unpublished poems and that and you know they are what they are but the other side of it was how often he quotes poetry in his novels mm-hmm. yeah and it's once you start looking it's everywhere there's characters who are poets like guard in uh, the Tommy mm-hmm. um and, and you know the the two old characters in uh uh, uh Herman Wauk is still alive mm-hmm. uh, you know they're the, the two elevated poets who are just sort of sitting down chewing at each other over poetry and yeah it's everywhere and uh, yeah you know and Peter Straub who you know sadly passed away uh, recently started his career as a poet too um he was he has like three or four books of poetry and you, you sort of see that there's a certain mindset there there are different art forms but you have to wonder if studying poetry as deeply as both of them did how much that influenced their facility with prose yeah like i actually i was just noticed i was saying what one of the things i appreciated about this book was kind of the uh the time and care you put into discussing king's poetry because i don't feel like i don't see that in other companions yeah like obviously it's not a huge part of his work but i think one of the things we've discovered on this podcast is we like going into those small little pocket and those little corners of his work like we haven't done a poetry episode yet but we probably will someday because i think that there is you know uh a lot to discuss there even if it's not you know his crowning achievements um, in your book, you sort of break things up into eras, which, you know, is something we've kind of unwittingly done. <laughs> Just like I think it's by the nature of when you do sort of a chronological um, dive into an author's work, you will inevitably find eras. So for you, how did you, you know, find the breaks? Like, how did you uh, define those eras? It just, it seemed natural to me that you know, we, we look at, and I break it up by the decades, and, and there, there's some very clear delineations i mean the 1970s were the double day years for the most part yeah yeah and you know then there's the transition into the 80s when you know he he has passed the cusp of being you know a celebrated writer to being this machine of you know bestseller after bestseller after bestseller and also the the rise of the first era of adaptations you know 1980 was when The Shining came out, uh, and then from that point on, like people just went crazy over adapting King. Yeah. Then you have the sort of late 80s um, crisis of uh, ending his drug addiction. Mm, yeah. And so then we go into the 90s with things like uh, the three novels, which with female characters: mm-hmm. Rose Matter, Dolores Claiborne, Gerald's Game. And so, like, there's the the early '90s section, and then you get toward the end of the '90s, and you begin another transition with things with his move to um, Scribner with Bag of Bones, where all of a sudden he's getting like, some literary acknowledgement, some critical acknowledgement. Yeah, had evaded him, and then of course the accident is the Cesora at the end of 1999, and then you have this whole new post-accident king 
that moves on into the 2000s. That's where we're at now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and I think when you get, you know, I, I don't think it's quite as clear to get from 2000s to the 2010s. But the way I looked at it was, it was the time when he really started to embrace his passion for straight crime fiction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Colorado Absolutely. kid. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the Mercedes series and Billy right. Summers. And so that, that's a, that's a little bit less obvious, but it, it seemed like a natural bridge since I had done it for the other decades. But yeah, when you think back over his career, it really does seem to be very decade based. I mean, he probably doesn't think about it that way, but from sure. my external point of view, that's the way I thought of it. Do you think we're done with the true crime era for him? I mean, know he has Holly coming out next year and all, but it seems as if there's this sort of, because of Gwendy and fairy tale, um, that maybe he is kind of going back to that a little bit more. Like maybe he's a little bit more interested in doing the the fantastical or, but then again, um, I mean, he seems, I mean, he just had later last year. So, I mean. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> we think of uh, the crime stuff as being more recent, but if you go right back to the beginning, a lot of his early short stories intermixed with the horror yeah. are a whole bunch of straight crime stories. Yeah. There's things like the ledge and the wedding gig and the fifth quarter. And strawberries. And so, right. And yeah, and, and I know from uh, my interactions with him that he really loves reading and watching crime. Yeah. A lot of the stuff we pass back and forth to each other are recommendations for novels and TV series that we know we're going to like. We like the Scandinavian uh, series. We, we just, uh, he recommended one, he posted on Twitter about one called Cleo, mm. which is uh, set in uh, the Berlins in 1990. And I mean, we both eat that stuff up. <laughs> and, you know, th there was a time when he wanted to, when he moved to England, which is where he ended up meeting Peter Straub face to face for the first time, he went there with the idea that he was going to write a British infused cozy or crime mystery. Um, so I don't think we've come to the end of that. Um, I think. And one of the things that I've discovered with my own writing is that I've evolved away from horror for the most part into writing crime fiction to the point where nowadays when I write a science fiction story or a fantasy or a horror, it's very often uh a carefully disguised crime story sure yeah i have one recently which is set on a space station but it's really the maltese falcon set <laughs> on a space station. and you know what what you read so widely um influences what you write too so yeah i mean the fantasy stuff keeps coming back um sadly i don't think that we'll ever get back to the territories um, yeah yeah but uh, yeah, who knows what he's got? Uh, we only know about Holly coming down the pipeline. We do know that there is a, a novella, which I assume is going to be part of a novella collection called Rattlesnake, which is a Cujo sequel. Yeah, he broke that news on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're, yeah, he just casually threw it out there. Like, oh, you're like, we're not going to care. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, neat. Cool. Uh, yeah, that's also exciting. I So, you know, we've been sort of, exploring this era between 1998 and 2002. That's kind of where we've been for around the last year because there's so much to discuss. And uh, obviously, you know, and I, we're about to move into like the final Dark Tower books and everything. But we spent a lot of time talking about the accident and a lot of talking about Dreamcatcher and um, and writing the bullet and stories like that that are so clearly indebted and um, immersed in his recovery. Um, and and facing mortality, like knowing like knowing that death is coming like that. Those themes 
are so pervasive in this post-accident work that it was such so clearly like a major event for him. Are the, one of our listeners actually posed this question, and it's it's basically: Are there any other moment like like things in King's life that you've seen that you think contributed to the shape of his work or the themes of his work as much as the accident has, like to this post-accident work? Like, what other uh, moments in his life do you think have rippled throughout his work? Well, uh, certainly, I think the uh, his experience as an addict mm, yeah. uh, has informed a lot of what he's done. I mean, you look at characters like, um, well, in the, the Shining, obviously Johnny is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, Guard. Larry, in, Larry in the Stand has his flirtations with addiction, um, and even to this day. Um, you've, you've read enough of uh, fairy tale to see that here's a man who fell down and severely shattered yeah. his leg, ends up in one of those external fixators that King had, mm-hmm. yep. becomes addicted to oxy, yeah. and also facing his mortality. Yeah, um, and in an interesting way, but he's finally gotten to a point where he understands that he needs to pass the mantle off to somebody else, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's twofold. He needs somebody to look after his dog. And he needs somebody to look after his secret. And so I think, you know, the the face of mortality certainly has to be on his mind. You know, he's he's coming up on 75 and he yeah. knows he's not going to live forever. Um, having kids uh, would be another thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in law, he wrote so much about kids in his early days. Primarily, I think, because he had a whole bunch of them running around and he, he had unwilling... Uh, fodder for material and now he's now he's got grandkids um he talks about how he you know his his own children are so grown up that he can't observe them for material anymore but now he's got the grandkids that he can do that with and ask them questions and yeah i mean I those, those are things that kind of immediately to mind yeah yeah absolutely and i guess speaking of you know that that era in 1998, 2002 and the accident and what you just kind of said about him getting older. And, you know, you have these quotes in the end of the book where, you know, King basically says he'll keep writing until he's done, you know, like, uh, and what's been interesting about doing all this research in this 1998 to 2002 era is that King talks a lot about him not writing and about him retiring and Mm -hmm. and i know that he criticized like some of the media coverage of those comments and and disputed them but the thing is like there the seeds of it are there there was this idea of retirement on his mind and it really i think it was there before the accident but exacerbated somewhat post-accident i guess like what insight do you have maybe into i don't know what motivated uh those comments from him and what changed that maybe uh you know the first time that people started to really think hmm, maybe he's not going to write forever yeah. was bag of bones because mm-hmm. bag of bones ends with uh the bartleby the scrivener quote that it, and that was a big inspiration for the book about you know i'm going to lay down my scrivener's pen and i prefer not to and a lot of people looked at that and said, oh, that, that means he's quitting to the extent that I had people within King's organization, you know, sort of telling me to use my platform at that time, which was the the, the Usenet news groups to reassure people that's not what he meant. You know, this, yeah. this, this isn't King writing. This is Mike Noonan. Um, but it really came up when he 
did his marathon writing of the final three dark tower books yeah and he spent a lot of time he he wrote 2500 pages uh, of manuscripts in a very very short you know a year and a half time period and he was exhausted and so it's natural that you might feel a little bit burnt out yeah so yeah i mean he he did definitely say to different people at least as he was quoted especially in that uh los angeles times interview that you know i can see the time when not necessarily that he wouldn't write anymore but that he wouldn't publish anymore mm -hmm. right and he always equivocated about that he'd say i i will go to my grave writing right but this machine of publishing can be exhausting they ask a lot of him I mean, he has to go out, you know, less now than in the past, but he always has to, you know, go out and promote the things. Yeah. And he has to do interviews. And, you know, for somebody, I, mean, I don't know how many interviews he's done in his life, but I'm guessing that it must be in the high hundreds, if not in the thousands. Yeah. And after a while, I'm sure he just doesn't want to do it anymore. I mean, I was really honored. This idea came up from the international thriller writers um you know they're a very supportive group and they help promote their members and so they were going to do some coverage of the, of the new book and the person who was in charge of that project said well, what do you think about getting stephen king to interview you it's great yeah and they said you know we had a similar experience with somebody who's written about lee child and lee child interviewed them for their book and it was very popular and i was thinking eh. You know, I've interviewed King a few times and we interviewed each other once for the audiobook of Flight or Fright, but it was a big ask. I was nervous about asking that. And it was uh, another demonstration of his de generosity that he didn't hesitate. He just said, yeah, absolutely. And he, uh, we did this interview and it's been, uh, it was, you know, it's great. I mean, my publisher and publicist are beside themselves, but it's just, <laughs> he is so generous that way because you have to think, I mean, there's been other times when people have approached him and sometimes they've filtered through me and say, oh, could we get in touch with King to do this or that? The other thing. And he said, you yeah, know, I'm too busy or right. I just finished a book and I want to spend some time with my grandkids or, you know, getting the time right is sometimes a matter of uh, balance. But uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, fun, I love it. Yeah. It was a Go fun ahead, piece. Mike. It was an absolutely fun piece. And I, I did you have a was there any anxiety going into it? <laughs> like, what is he going to ask? um not really because i knew he wasn't gonna like drop any bombs or <laughs> yeah. so that, that wouldn't be nice but uh yeah i mean he asked me the sorts of things that gave me some room to really be expansive about things that maybe i haven't talked about in other places before yeah. and uh so sure. was yeah i love what you were just saying about like the idea like the distinction between publishing and writing and that's something we've talked about on this pod too because i love we mentioned the plant earlier, uh, the plant riding the bullet. These were attempts to break from traditional publishing. And I think the whole experience that he had, uh, you know, I believe going from Viking to Scribner, like I know that that was kind of a whole, you know, ordeal. And I think mm -hmm. it probably exhausted him. And I think and so watching over the years him try to i think boost like i think about like the true crime stuff mm -hmm. that he does and like trying to boost smaller publishers and do work there and then also try to break from sort of the and especially now because he was just in court testifying about the um mergers that were happening right. with simon and schuster i believe and and he and i love what he said where he was basically like like this isn't good for writers you know all of this monopolization and i think he i have seen from him 
going back as far as the 90s, all of this concern, I think, about the state of the publishing industry. And as somebody who is really powerful in that industry, it's been it was it's been, it was interesting to see him try to sidestep those kind of things. But even then, like the plant, all the plant um experiment was successful financially, but it still wasn't the solution that maybe he was hoping it would be, you know? Right. Yeah. And he's always been, I, I, I think I have a section in this book about King as an innovator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, to do a serial novel. Yep. Um, especially when the first installment comes out and you haven't finished writing the last one. Yeah. And that was a wild gamble. And for a brief time, it inspired a lot of other people to do the same thing. Um, the writing the bullet and the plant weren't his first digital publications mm-hmm. when um nightmares and dreams came came out back in the really primitive internet era you could ftp into a site and download a little package which lets you read omni's last case so yeah i think we did a, read about that yeah and you can get a gif image of the cover um when the kindle came out he thought hmm what can I do with what? What does the Kindle speak to me? How can I do something about the Kindle? And Ur came out of the you know the announcement of the Kindle. He's probably got the world's only pink Kindle. <laughs> um, and yeah, and all along he's been sort of you know challenging the status quo, looking at new ways of doing things. And certainly when streaming came along, he leapt into that you know to the extent that he could you know with in collaboration with others to look at okay well let's see what uh hulu can do let's see what apple tv can do yeah. let's, you know give them all a crack at it and see where things work i mean he posted the other day how delighted he was that storm of the century is now available yeah. on hulu um because you know when it came out it was you know must see tv but then you know unless you had the discs or something it was a challenge to to get that and, and it was a really creepy excellent thing yeah, yeah we so, love it yeah yeah, so so innovation, but you know another little story. So Richard Chismar, who people know from the Gwendy books, had a started out just as a, a magazine publisher, mm-hmm. and King sent in had his agent send in a, a story, and Rich had a fairly substantial slush pile, and it just went into the slush pile, and he didn't know it was there. <laughs> And the King's agent calls Rich up one time and says, you know, did you not like Steve's story? <laughs> and, and Rich almost has a heart attack going through the pile to try to find this story, which, you know, for a small magazine to be able to publish a King's story huge. is yeah. huge. Yeah, absolutely huge. Yeah, I love I mean, that. We, yeah, I mean, one of the, the, the real things I love about doing this podcast is that, you know, we all come from research backgrounds. Me in particularly, I, I got my degree in history and, Never in a million years thought that my life would lead to just studying the work of Stephen King. But the thing is, is that there's a, you know, there's a misnomer in saying, oh, well, I just, you know, study the work of Stephen King. Because what we've learned while doing this podcast is that he really is a prism for pop culture throughout the last 50 or 60 years. Because, I mean, you know, wherever he goes, that seems to be where trends or some sort of things are happening in, in pop culture. And usually he's ahead of the curve, as we just discussed. And... I, I think that's so interesting to see, you know, all, you know, now that we're 30, 40 years into his career on the podcast, we really do get to discuss so many, like so much of so much of history that's happened, not only just, in, you know, in, in, in U.S. history, but in world history as well. And we've kicked around the idea on this show that, you know, 
King really is the last of his kind, this like blockbuster author. And I think blockbuster author is, it, it's just, a, it's, it's like kind of, um, it's an understatement on how to call him because he really just has pervaded every corner of pop culture. And I, and I wondered like, do you think that was just a sign of the times of which he came in, you know, the, the crossroads that he was able to enter? Or do you think that's the strength of him as a writer, the, the genres that he's been able to kind of shift through? Like, what do you think it is about him that's made him, you know, essentially be the walking dude, really, of, yeah. of the last 50 years in pop culture? Well, you know, an, an inter- inter- interesting um, what if scenario is what if Getting It On, Rage, had been his first published novel? Yeah. How different would things have gone from that point onward? Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was writing horror at the time, definitely, you know, he had all sorts of short stories. But if Rage had been published and if it had been a successful publication, which is questionable, you know, would it have, it certainly might not have caught fire like Carrie did. Yeah. Uh, pun intended. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, uh, the, 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 the two things I think that he has that not every other even best-selling writer has is the ability to create just immensely imaginative and compelling stories but more importantly to populate them with characters that we just fall in love with right from the very beginning i mean to bring it man there's lots of examples i could talk about but to bring it into you know 2022 there's almost 200 pages of fairy tale in which all we do is get to know Charlie Reed. Yeah. yeah. Which Charlie I McGee, love. Char- yeah. Charlie McGee Reed, I, I, I emphasize. He's Charlie yeah. yeah, which is so fun. Um, yeah. And in doing that, we're with him for the rest of the journey because we're so invested in the outcome, not only of him, but also of Radar. You know, King, King's animal characters, you know, sometimes get as much personality as, as, as humans do. But I think sometimes that's something that other writers don't succeed as well at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've read thousands of books, and certainly there are a lot of authors who there must read. You know, as soon as they come out, I'll buy them. But sometimes when I go back and look at a book on the shelf, I might have a vague recollection of what the story is about, or I might have a really good recollection of it, but I can't always pick out in my mind who the characters were. Whereas with King. If you put a shelf of all of his books up there and you pointed to that one, I could tell you probably right down to the secondary and tertiary characters who was in that book and what they were all about and what they did. And yeah. so it's it's a facility of characterization, which is magical. Yeah. 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 Um, as we as we kind of like wind down here, I'd love to talk about adaptations just a little bit. We just spent three hours on an episode talking about kind of the highs and lows of the last five years, which we've dubbed the, you know, sort of Stephen King's cinematic renaissance. Uh, and you've obviously been on this roller coaster for a long time. So I'm curious what you make of the last five years, sort of twists and turns in terms of adaptations, what's been successful, what hasn't, do you see another surge coming? Uh, do you think Hollywood perhaps uh, fumbled the energy coming off of it? Uh, you know, like, where do you think we are in terms of this, this era of cinematic adaptations? Well, I think what we're seeing now is something that we saw back in the uh, early to mid 80s. Yeah. Was success breeds duplication, Mm. uh, sometimes shoddier work because everybody's trying to capitalize on something that seems like a vein of gold. I mean, the success of part one of it 
was a lightning bolt that nobody expected. No. Yeah. No. And I'm not sure that ultimately it was a great thing for anybody except the studio. Yeah. Because then all of a sudden everybody's saying, oh, King's Magic again. Let's uh, remake Pet Cemetery. Let's remake this. Let's make the 15th chapter of Children of the Corn. <laughs> and, and and so and, and none of those really in the theatrical world have been terribly successful. Now yeah. on the small screen world of streaming, there's been some great things happening. Yeah um you know mike flanagan has done some terrific work yeah uh, both, both in the king world and elsewhere um dr sleep was a disappointment financially although i don't think it was creatively i think there that was a really solid piece of work yeah especially given that he had to tread two worlds um the kubrick world and the king world to come up with this story yeah um, I don't know what's happening with Salem's Lot. Yeah. Uh, we're supposed to be seeing it now. I, I was <laughs> communicating with the publicists uh, a couple of months ago to say, you know, are you going to do screenings? And then, you know, it gets bounced to April and then it just disappears off the thing altogether. Yeah. Does that mean that the studio doesn't have any faith in it? Or, or maybe they're waiting for Halloween or, you know, who knows? Yeah. But there's not really much on the horizon right now. Yeah. I mean... I, I do this um, essay every year for uh, the Overlook Connections calendar. And the one for 2021, there was all sorts of streaming uh, releases. Yeah. And in 2022, we have a grand total of one, which is Mr. Harrigan's phone, which will yeah. be out in a couple of months. I mean, it's just thing that just dried up completely. Yeah. Um, and, but the fun, and the other funny thing was I always say look ahead these are the things that have been auctioned and people have been attached to them my whole list at the end of 2021 not a single one of them ever came to anything yeah yep. and so and and that's always been true uh there, there's always been you know 20 things that people talk about they get the rights to and maybe they've got a screenwriter and maybe they've got a director and they just sort of fizzle out you know maybe someday we'll see the talisman now that the mm -hmm. duffer brothers are attached to it but yeah you know, there, there's been so many other ones like will we ever see from a buick age uh, well yeah somebody else just all fired up about it but yeah who knows yeah um and and hollywood has changed its model to you know blockbuster mode where if it's not going to make them a hundred million dollars at least then they're not so interested in it which i think was where streaming comes in and you know the talisman i think will benefit from that totally. because any of the scripts that have been done over the last 40 years uh i've never really captured the talisman all that well but you know given the space and time of a streaming thing uh maybe someday somebody will do the dark tower at the length and breadth that it needs to be done yeah uh, one of our listeners wanted us to ask you uh should the dark tower series be adapted to the screen again or is it better to just leave it be at this point uh based on the kind of failures of the last couple attempts yeah, i mean i think glenn mazara probably could have written the hell out of a oh, season yeah. of Wizarding Glass. We uh, would have loved it. Yeah, we yeah. loved the pilot. We saw it and it's yeah. um, we're sad it didn't work out. Incredibly yeah. sad. So, yeah. And, and I mean, Ron Howard and Akiva Goldsman had a really interesting approach when they originally got the rights. They were going to do several movies and then in between they were going to do streaming series. You know, epic stuff at the big screen and more personal stuff at the, the streaming level. And they had an interesting, I mean, they sat down and they remapped out the series. They had a, like a room full of 
index cards on the floor where they had sort of taken bits from here and bits from there and put it together into a more linear fashion. Um, whether somebody's got the gumption to do that again, because it's a big, it's a big project. And um, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of words it is and how many, you know, set yeah. pieces and, and, and how you tell it to make it accessible to people who haven't necessarily read the book. Yeah. Um, which I think is something that they struggled with, with the 2017 movie. You know, you, you put Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey in something and people are going to show up. You got to write a movie for them, even if they've never even read a Stephen King book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's that it's, sort of struggle. It's a tough puzzle. You know, yeah. it's a tough puzzle to solve. I mean, the thing that's so astounding to me is, is that, you know, it, we were trying to discuss, like, was it the biggest adaptation that's ever happened and even beyond fi the, the finances just pop culture wise like the, in, in the cultural consciousness and the only other film i could think of that really connected on that level especially with youth was like maybe carrie um in terms of just influencing the the sort of zeitgeist or capturing the zeitgeist but also really kind of um bleeding and permeating into the 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 tenets of that youth like when we think of high school now we think of carrie when we think of you know growing up Obviously, we've thought about Stand By Me before, but I think a lot of kids going forward are going to be thinking of it. And for me, it was really exciting also because, you know, not only are you getting a lot of generations that are now coming in and reading Stephen King, but one of the things that I was hopeful with this renaissance was that we're going to start getting people that, you know, filmmakers that, and especially something that, this is something that Randall has written about, it's something that, you know, we were going to get filmmakers that grew up with King that were going to start, you know, maybe adapting their favorite stories. And we started getting that, you know, like getting Gerald's Game in 1922 and um, and even I mean, obviously, even getting something as new as like Dr. Sleep. It was exciting to see some of these newer stories get their first adaptations. And I just and I wonder, I, th I just think Hollywood got in the way of just being yeah. like, all right, well, we got to do the big IP ones and we have to mm -hmm. redo this again and again. And And I do really think that the fumbling the stand is what really kind of just put it to the ground was that like that was your chance to to kind of match the the level of it and i just yeah. don't think that they were able to do it and yeah and and if you're going to remake something that was written for the screen by stephen king right yeah, you yeah. really need to bring your a game to it yeah and for me the best thing about that series the remake was the final episode where once again, you know, Stephen King brings something new to it. Yeah. The rest of it was, you know, it was okay for what it was, but it was nothing. They, were, they, were, they didn't bring anything new to it. No. Exactly. Yeah, that was our uh, big issue. It's and like, you know, Salem's yeah. Lot is something which I think is really ripe for a good feature. Yeah. Because there's been two different two night miniseries of it, and the the original one at the time was fantastic yeah i, mean, I yeah. watched it when it came out and there are scenes in that that live on to this day it's hard to go back and watch it now because it's of its era and it's you know campy a little bit here and there sure uh, the second version i just don't have much use for i thought they just really changed it to an extent that i didn't even like ben Mears right from the get-go yeah um, so I thought, here's an opportunity to take something which is, you know, it's a manageable story. It's not a, you know, 800 page book, you know, you really could, could do something with it. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, because there has been news that they've been doing some reshoots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think that they've scrapped it. 
But uh, I'm hoping that this will be the Salem's lot that we've all been living with. I mean, I read it in 1979. That story is. Yeah, I know that's an important one for you. Yeah. 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 All right. As we wrap up here, I want to do a quick little lightning round with you because uh, I don't think we've had a chance to do this with you yet. And basically okay. just ask you, um, you know, uh, of the King books, which ones uh, are your favorites? And so I'm going to start with uh, favorite book. And then I'm, I have several of these. So just a little lightning round. Favorite King book. Favorite King book, Salem's Lot. Nice. Scariest King book. Pet Cemetery. All right. Ooh. Grossest King book. <laughs> Dreamcatcher. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, is there a King book that you you would say you've reread the most? Um, probably either The Stand or It. Yeah. How about a book you would, a King book you could never read again? Um, Tommyknockers and Needful Things. <laughs> Why Needful Things? I hated everybody. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love Needful Things. It's like my favorite. Yeah, uh, and, and, and King is sort of disappointed about the reaction to it, but there is absolutely nobody other than the sheriff and his girlfriend. There's nobody yeah. in that book I like. <laughs> it, is a, it is a rough crowd for sure. Um, how about uh, like favorite villain in all of the King world? Favorite villain? Well, you know, the, 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 uh, there's, there's some obvious ones. Uh, you know, Randall Flagg and Pennywise. Mm. Um... Yeah, I guess I'll just have to go for Randall Flagg because he was the most inept villain. Yeah, uh, he never really was as good as he thought he was. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I love your discussion about king villains too and evil in in your book, like where you talk about the idea of King's vision of of evil being powerful but stupid, and that's something I talk about a lot on on this show. Is the various ways in which. Uh, evil is powerful, but it's always like whatever institutions build up around the sense of evil, there's always kind of structural problems, like structural problems. Like yeah. it all begins to collapse, you know, because it's kind of a like only like raw villainy or whatever can only get you so far. The infrastructure of the villain, there's always this sense that it's crumbling. I mean, you get that in the stand, you get that in it, you get that in even like the Institute, which came out, you sure. know, they talk so much about the Institute being this like crumbling building, which I, yeah. you know, and I, I find that such a fascinating recurring theme uh, with King. So. And under the dome, of course, you know, under the dome. Little yeah. fiefdom and his big fear is that he'll lose his controlled environment and then everybody will find out, you know, what a humbug he really is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he always wires um, that in with like religiosity too, or it's, mm -hmm. it has a religious, religious element that gets corrupted, which I love yeah. so much about, you know, that mistrust for sure. Um, yeah. Just like crumbling institutions, which I think is very resonant. Just, you know, if we talk, we talk about the kind of uh, prism that he is into culture. I think that we've seen crumbling institutions, uh, become more and more of a thing within our culture. And I think King is very attuned to that. Um, last last one, uh, favorite adaptation. Favorite adaptation. Hmm. And you can uh, throw out a few if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, I really liked what they did with the Mercedes books. Yeah, same. Yeah. Um, they added things to it. Uh, you know, having uh, his his next door neighbor brought in was a, a really nice touch. It yeah. gave, some, gave him somebody to talk to. Yeah, um, which is something that they also did in eleven twenty two sixty three. They they gave uh, the main character a sidekick. Yeah, but so much of that thing is internal um, that he needed somebody to you know tell the audience rather than just you know doing a, an internal monologue. Oh God, there's been so many, but uh, I mean. Uh, um, 
Yeah, I, I do like the the Shining miniseries to a certain point. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not quite what I, you know, it's, it's not quite the blockbuster that it could have been. But um, I mean, Gerald's game. Uh, it's really yeah, good. There's there's so many. There's uh, yeah. What's a hard, book? Hard what's a book that you're still waiting on pins and needles to get adapted? Um, Duma Key. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. The audiobook of that one is fantastic. Uh, John Slattery, the guy from Mad Men, oh, yeah. is the reader. And there's yeah. there's a certain sardonic tone to that character, and Slattery just really, really just gets it. Um, another adaptation that I talk about quite a bit is Dolores Claiborne. Mm. Yeah. And for me, it's an example of something where you tear the book to pieces, reassemble it so that it's almost not recognizable, and yet you capture the whole novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Last question, Mike. Do you want to do this? Yeah. So we're going to Banger in a few weeks, and I wondered if you had any spots that you'd recommend that are maybe a little off the beaten trail. Maybe not. You know, the ones that are the obvious ones, so to speak. Yeah. The the, the place where we had dinner before the um, where Flight or Fright was born before we went to see the uh, world premiere of the Dark Tower, unfortunately, isn't there anymore. It was. Uh, Nick's cruising diner and it was yeah. a nice 50s thing but it's closed i read about that that's so i was so bummed out to see those gone um yeah i mean just walk around the downtown yeah the downtown is nice and historic uh i think gerald summers uh still has his bookstore there although he sometimes closes and that, that's a place where you can go in and see some really cool shit yeah yeah he's got props and things and uh um, I'm gonna lose so much money going on this trip. No, it's just, yeah. gonna, just all gone. <laughs> like, um, you know, take a spin up around Orono, uh, which is you know just a couple of miles out of town. That's where his uh, archives used to be, but you'll see the campus where he he uh, attended university. Now, I spent so much time in Bangor as a kid because I grew up in New Brunswick in Eastern Canada, and, yeah. and we just went there on camping trips and shopping trips. And so I'm really sort of familiar. I know where the campgrounds were. I don't know if they still are there anymore, but we camped uh, in the, uh, I think it was the Herman campground on the Hammond Street exit or vice versa. I can't remember which it was, but yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time there. It's, it's a very small town. It's uh, it's it's cozy. I can't uh, wait. Yeah. 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 We're very excited. We're very, very excited. Well, thank you so much, Bev, for your time. This has been really lovely talking to you. The book is Stephen King, A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. It's now available, uh, I assume, wherever you can get books. But Absolutely. is there World, worldwide, which is worldwide. Really nice. That's uh, awesome. the, the previous campaign was a Barnes & Noble exclusive, which was a bit of a bummer in the fact yeah. that people couldn't get it. But yeah, this one, people can buy it in Argentina or Fiji or wherever they are, you know. Yeah, and I'd highly recommend the physical version. It's a great coffee table book. It's beautiful, filled with color, filled with uh, photos, archival things. It's it's great. And uh, yeah. anything else you want to plug, Bev? Um, nothing that comes to mind immediately. The, the, the most recent uh, fiction publication of any substance I had was a book uh, called Dissonant Harmonies that uh, Brian Keene and I put together. Mm-hmm. And it's my longest published fiction to date. Um, I have a novella in it called The Dead of Winter. Um, and it's, we had fun doing that because we made each other a playlist for the other author to listen to while we each wrote our independent nice. novellas. So that, that, that's a fun thing. And it was published originally by Cemetery Dance. There's a, a print and a digital version and uh, highly recommended. It. it makes a great Christmas present. We'll Love it. We'll see great. Out. Well, thanks so much, Bev. Uh, so much. Hopefully we'll get you back on the pod again soon. Yeah. I appreciate it. Anytime. Have a good one. I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. I got
This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.